morning. So, as many of you asked, and many of you haven't yet, uh, you know, or many of you know that Liz and I and our family were on vacation last week, and um, and yes, the trip went well. And but as is common, after all the stress of traveling and seeing people and the backlog of work, now we actually need the vacation. Um, so uh, you can pray for us there. Uh, also, you know, between you know the 40 youth and youth leaders who are away with Wes on their retreat and all the kids being gone now, I get to talk to you parents like in secret. And I do just want to, you know, make note of, you know, uh, Diane mentioned the, the parents conference that's coming up in, in February. And I just want to encourage parents to, uh, well, to try to hew out time in their schedule to attend. I'm sure it's going to be uh, well worth it, and it'll be edifying for us as we learn to, to raise and disciple and to teach our children. So I'm excited for that. Uh, with that, let's pray, and then we'll dive into the, into the Word. Father, we give you thanks and praise for your grace to us, and we ask that you would come and that you would speak to us, that it would be your spirit that we hear, your voice that challenges and calls and comforts, and that all that you say to us, all the things that your spirit says to our spirit, that we would respond with yes and amen, and that we would be your people, and you are God, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. How did you go bankrupt, Bill asked. Two ways, Mike said. Gradually and then suddenly. These words written by Ernest Hemingway in his novel, The Sun Still Rises, well, while it speaks to personal bankruptcy of, of one of the characters, it, that phenomena of, of how a life can be destroyed, can fall apart, often follows that pattern of gradually and then suddenly. Small movements, small decisions that seem to have no effect, and then all of a sudden, things come crashing down. The marriage that drifts apart year in and year out, and all of a sudden, things shatter. The young, promising athlete or scholar who, who starts making some poor decisions and Eventually, he finds that all this potential that he once had means nothing, and his life is in shambles. Or perhaps even a church. A church that, that fails to take up Jesus' call to disciple the nations. That slowly dwindles and fades until one day, suddenly, the doors are shuttered. This gradually and then suddenly phenomenon can, well, often lures us into a, a sense of complacency, of security. Yeah. Things, just, they fall apart gradually until they fall apart suddenly. As we begin this a new series today, and really we're beginning the start of two new series today, uh, following, you know, going through the book of 1 Samuel or portions of the book of 1 Samuel and, and really zeroing in on the life of Saul, Israel's first king. And Saul was a man of promise, a man of potential, a man who, who on all appearances looked like he would be a great king, a great leader. But his life fell apart gradually and then suddenly. Morally, spiritually, 
in all the, the success that he was aiming after, all of it came crashing down at the end. And why is it? Well, he didn't tend to his inner life. He didn't tend to this, this, this problem that, that sought to derail him, namely the, pop, the problem of pride. And in the book of Samuel, it, there's this constant theme, this constant reminder, as we see in the, in the workings of, of God's people, both corporately and individually, the way that God works and he operates in the world. I'll probably say this a thousand times over the next several weeks. That we serve a God who brings down the proud and he exalts the humble. All that is high and lofty, he will bring low. But the low, the humble, the less than, he exalts. And perhaps that is an assurance to us, but perhaps that terrifies us. But as we dive into the, the scriptures and we hear and we see God's working in, in the life of Saul and, and others throughout, well, let it not be true of us. Let us hear the word, to flee from the, the problems that, that you know, Saul demonstrated, and to take hold of the way that God has called us to live. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8. It's on page 281, if you're using the, the red text, uh, pew Bible that's in front of you. And as we enter into, into the text, um, well, we're, we're not actually going to start with Saul, but what initiated Saul's rise to, to power and, and prominence. It starts with a request of God's people. Now, God's people, the Israelites, they have been bruised and battered. And despite a few notable victories over the, you know, that have come lately, they've, they're largely under the thumb of the dominant Philistines. They're next-door neighbors who are uh, opposing them, tormenting them, putting them to slavery, and making life pretty miserable. And so as we, as we come to the text, well, we're going to come to both a problem and a proposed solution. So read with me, starting at verse 1. And then, no, it's a little bit of a longer passage, but you guys can handle it. Verse 1. So when Samuel, he's the prophet, he grew old, and he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, You're old. It's a great way to start a conversation, right? You're old and your sons do not follow your ways. So appoint for us a king to lead us as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing to you now. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly. And let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. And he said, 
This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He'll take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, so others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and the vineyards and the olive groves and give them to his attendants. He'll take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants, the best of your cattle and donkeys, he'll take for his own use. He'll take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. And when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like the other nations with a king to lead us into battle, to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it to the Lord, and the Lord answered, Listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, Everyone, go back to your own town. J.P. Morgan famously quipped that a man always has two reasons for what he does a good one, and the real one. As we come to, as we come to this text, the, as the elders of Israel, they, they come before Samuel and they, they make a request and they have a good reason and a real reason. They want a king. And the good reason is, listen, you, you left your numbskull sons in charge who don't do what's right. We need somebody better. But the real reason that comes out as they, begin, as they continue talking, what does he say in verses 19 to 20? They say, we want a king over us. So then we will be like the other nations with a king to lead us, to go out before us and fight our battles. They wanted a king, one to fight their battles for them, one to lead them into victory. You see, Israel was plagued. They were, as we talked about, you know, the, the Philistines were strong against them. Not to mention some of their other neighbors. The Philistines who kind of sailed in you know, around the, the Bronze Age collapse and they, they settled there in the, on the uh, western shore of Palestine. And they were fierce. They were they had good government bureaucracy where they were able to, to move with force and power. And Israel, at this time, was more of a, a confederation of tribes that spent as much time fighting one another as they did their enemies. They wanted a unifying figure. One who would bring them together, help them muster their own strength to go out and defeat their enemies. Now, from a world perspective, this makes sense. Well, why wouldn't you want somebody who's going to take control and lead us? Why wouldn't you want somebody who can help organize all this confederation of tribes with everyone's kind of doing their own thing and say, hey, nope, this is what we're going to do. But we know while that makes sense from the human perspective, from the divine perspective, the reason that they're subject to the Philistines, the reason that they're losing their battles, if you're reading through you know, the book of Judges, is not because their government system is not good enough. 
the reason that they're losing is because they're rejecting the rule and reign of God. That their losses are the symptom of their real problem. But they're seeing the symptom and saying, that's my problem, right? God is saying, the reason you're losing is because you have rejected me and I'm handing you over to your enemies. That's the problem. Your rejection of my kingship, of my lordship. But they're saying, no, no, my real problem is that they're beating us. They're handling us on the battlefield. They're making slaves out of us. And sure, it's the problem that they feel, but the Lord says, that's not your real problem. But because they think it is, they see the symptom as a real problem, and they don't see the real problem as their real problem, well, then they want the wrong solution. Give us a king to fight our battles, to lead us out. Now, the problem in the request is not the request for a king. We should expect the king to come, right? Remember God's promise to Abraham as he formed this as his people? He said, you know, kings are going to come from you. To Jacob, as he's prophesying over his sons, he says to Judah, the scepter will not depart from Judah. Even the wicked prophet Balaam in Numbers talks about the star that comes out of Jacob, the scepter that will rise out of Israel, and the ruler that will come from Jacob. And if you're reading the the Hebrew Bible, the the very last line of the prior verse, the book of Judges, should give a quick plug, is perhaps one of my favorite books in the Bible, and they're going through it in Sunday school, so you might want to attend. But the very last line is, you know, after seeing just the chaos and, and dismalness of God's people is, you know, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There is a need and a desire and an expectation of a king. And when the people come and ask for it, yet it doesn't please God. Why? Because they don't necessarily want a king to deal with their their real problem. They want a king to deal with their symptom. He wants to give a king who's going to lead with righteousness and justice, who's going to keep the people from doing what's right in their own eyes and and help them to follow and walk in the ways of the Lord. But they want a king to be like the nations, to lead them into battle, to be a figurehead and a unifying figure that they will collect their, or bring together their collective might. They're looking at their problem and saying, our, pro- our problem is that we're not like the other nations. We don't have that kind of government structure. And God's saying, no, your problem is that you're too much like the other nations. You serve their gods. You follow their ways. And you think that you're going to find your security in a strong man who's going to fight for you rather than my strong word for you. They have a problem, but they just can't see it. I don't know if you've ever spent time with somebody who is heavily addicted to a substance. Someone who, well, you know, either an alcohol or heroin or fentanyl or, or, 
any of you know, those hard drugs that, that captures them both psychologically and physiologically. But when such a thing happens, well, it skews their perception of what their, their real need is. When I was doing mission work in Philadelphia and working among many addicts, I'd see it all the time. But it's not restricted even to, you know, inner city Philadelphia. Many of us have our own stories of, of people that we've known who, who have given themselves some, some sort of substance abuse. There's a family that, that we knew, and uh, we knew them while they were, well, they, they seemed to, to really have, really have their act together. They had the sweetest kids. They were kind and respectful. But somehow, in some way, the parents fell into drugs. And we'd occasionally see their kids, they would like drop them off at a VBS, and you know, they were, you could see just the light that went out from their eyes. They would wear the same dirty clothes every single day. Some of them came with, you know, fungus growing in their heads, not having eaten a single thing that day. And what we saw is, you know, other people in our church who, you know, just without asking, everyone just like bought new clothes or found, you know, new clothes to, to give to these kids who had, you know, sneakers that were too small, clothes that had holes in them, dirt everywhere, give them. And, and to provide for them something to, to wear. And it didn't take long for us to realize that none of those new clothes that people just decided to give them were actually being worn. The suspicion, the expectation, the assumption is that all these new clothes for their kids were just sold for more drugs. The father who had reportedly told his kids, we don't follow God here, we follow drugs. But when you work with such people who are captive to to such substance, and it changes their perception to see what their real need is. Everything about them tells them, what I need is more of the substance. Another drink, another hit, a little bit more. Everyone who can, who's outside of the situation can see clearly, well, that's not what you need. No, you need to get clean. You need to get sober. You're destroying your life bit by bit. But can they realize that? Can they see that? No, because everything within them screams, my real problem is I need more. Pride skews our vision as much as any drugs. The idea that we are able to assess what our real problem is, that through my own perception, through my own feelings, through my own intuition, that I can look at my life and I can say, that's my real problem. And what do we do when we find what we think what we found our real problem is that we turn and we look to God, shaking our fists and saying, why haven't you solved my problem? Give us a king to lead me into battle. We see the pride of the people that says, no, we know what our problem is. We know what the solution is. Just do what we want and everything's going to be okay. 
Now I ask you, think about your own life right now. Think about your own problems. The things that keep you up at night. The things that frustrate you. The things that you say, if I could just solve this, well then everything would be okay. Could it be that in our frustrations over our unanswered prayers, it's because there's this chasm between our self-assessment of our needs and our true needs? That when when the divine perspective on our life says, you know, this is what you really need, and we're saying, no, 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 I know what I need. I don't want to listen to what you have to say. I can assess for myself what my problem is. And if you loved me, if you cared for me, you'd fix what I say is wrong. But ultimately, what what the Scriptures declare to us is that, you know, whatever our problems are, and I don't want to make light of them or dismiss them or make them less than what they are. They may be real and legitimate problems, just as Israel being defeated by these pagan Gentiles, the Philistines. It was a real problem. Absolutely. But there was a deeper problem. And as we look at our, our problems, what we hear is the declaration of Scripture that our problems run much, much deeper than what we think. They are much more close than we suspect. And our ultimate problem our ultimate need is not the things that we think, but that we are sta- sinners who will stand before a holy and righteous God. And all the other problems that are real legitimate things pale in comparison to our real ultimate problem of this sin that puts us at, at enmity with God, that makes an enemy with Him, and we will stand before Him. And the the Scriptures declare, that's your real problem. I would say, don't take the way of pride that it's going to say, no, 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 I know what my real problem is, and reject the divine perspective on your life. Nor take the way of pride and reject the divine warning to the ways that we are going to go. So Israel... You know, they saw their immediate problem as their ultimate need. And so what did they decide to do? They want to open the door to a worse condition. Read with me again verses 10 and following. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. And he said, and he said this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons, and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifty. And if people are probably like, yeah, that sounds good. We want, that'd be great. Others to plow his ground and reap his harvest. That's good. Still others to make weapons of war and equipments for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks. He will take the best of your fields 
and vineyards and olive groves. He'll give them to his attendants. He'll take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants, the best of your cattle, the donkeys he will take for his own use. He'll take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. Samuel's warning to them is this. Let's, I will do what you say, but know this. You are, wanting, you are going to put before you a king who's going to take from you. And ironically, the very thing that you want a king to do for you and to free you from the, the subjection, subjection of the Philistines, the king himself will do to you. Your sons he'll take, your daughters he'll take, the best of your lands he'll take, the best of your produce he will take, the best of all that you have, the best of the good life he will take. And he'll make you slaves. But all the people unwilling to see things from the divine perspective, unwilling to hear the divine warning, clouded their eyes by pride, saying, no, 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 we want a king anyway. Because we know what our real problem is. We see this happen all the time. The assumption that we know what our real problem is and opening the door to greater, vaster, bigger problems. Like in the 90s, early 90s, as the Soviets were wanting to expand into, into Afghanistan, a bad thing, admittedly, but what did we do? Well, covertly, we, uh, we found some, a ragtag bunch of people who were wanting to fight against them. You may have heard of them. They're called the Taliban. And we supported them with intel, weapons, money. And this ragtag group, knowing what our, thinking what we, we knew what our real enemy is, gave a stranglehold of two this group called the Taliban, who would ultimately become, well, perhaps a greater threat than the Soviets were at the time. Those who would end up funding and securing terrorists, the same ones who oh, did 9-11. We thought we knew what the problem was, and we made an alliance with perhaps a far greater and deeper problem, you know, problem. And I'm not saying that I'm blaming anybody for that. I don't know what the intel was at the time or what they thought was going to happen or what was, would have happened in another world. But all I'm saying is that that's the point. That we think that we know what the problem is and we end up well, getting into bed with something that can be a far greater problem for us in the long run. And at the time where the waning Soviet, you know, the Soviet empire about to crumble, the, it was a far well, lesser problem than what would become a terrorist hotspot in Afghanistan. That we can't necessarily see what our real problem is. And because of that, we end up looking to something to be our master. The great 20th century theologian, Bob Dylan, put it this way. You got to serve somebody. And it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. 
And all of us looking to, you know, seeing what our problem is, look to have something be our master that we think is going to solve that problem. We want to be loved. So we pursue pursue beauty. That someone would find us desirable. And that master becomes a tyrant as we die a million deaths, as we slowly age and lose the beauty that we had. We desire to have comfort. And we so fixate on our circumstances and how happy and comfortable that we are that we're unable to actually enjoy anything. Psychologists call this the happiness paradox, that the more we pursue happiness, the less we can actually attain it. Like trying to hold in our hands and grasp sand that just seems to fall out of our fingers. We want to be in control. And then we become anxious of all the things that are outside of our control, spinning our wheels to try to become our own master over them. We desire a king who's going to solve our problems, but ultimately what we do is we elect a king who's going to take from us, who will take the best that we have. But there is another way. And there is another king. There is another master who, who, yes, he demands our obedience. Yes, he calls us to be his people. But he is not the kings of this earth, the masters that we subject ourselves to. No, he is, he is a king, not like the ones that we see around us. He is a king who gives. The kings of this world, yes, they take our sons to lead them into battle and to secure them. But we have a king who gave his son to lead us into battle. The kings of this world that take the best of life, that take the best of things that we have to secure for themselves comfort and ease. Yet we have a king who gives his son to enter into our suffering. A king who, who leaves the throne of heaven and the peace and the joy that that has to enter into our world to suffer both with us and for us. The kings of the world who take the best things, the best that we have, promising security and safety. But we have a king who gives and gives lavishly. The one of whom it can, it can be said that every good and perfect gifts, gift comes from him. The kings of this world that make slaves out of free men. But there is a king who makes free men out of slaves. And those who are under the bondage of sin and death, under the, the terror of all that this world has to offer, the, yet there, this king gives his son that we might be free. And so the call for the people of God and the call for those who not yet the people of God is to take stock of who is my king, who is the master, to whose, uh, to whose call do I heed, do I listen to? Am I, am I joining the nations to set up a king that's going to take the best of my life? Or am I trusting both the perspectives and the warnings of the king who gives?
the king who's generous, the king who gives of himself, the king who welcomes the sinner and the lost and the lonely, the king who invites all to enjoy himself. Beloved of God, that's the king that we follow. That's the king we should serve. That's the king whose word we should listen to. That our problems are not government solutions. They're not the strong man who's going to fight for us. No, the solution to us as the people of God is that, is that there is a king who is better than the ones of this world. And he's worth following. Amen? Let's pray. Kind Father, we give you thanks and praise for your grace to us. And Lord, I ask that by your Spirit that you would do a a miracle here this morning in the lives of us, your people. That you would open our eyes. That you would reveal to our hearts once again our own pride. Our own assumption that we know what our real problem is our own unwillingness to listen to your perspective and to hear your warnings. And that we would take rest and refuge in you, our generous king, our giving king, that we would find your life in our life. We pray in the wonderful and the powerful name of Jesus.